0: CHAPTER FIFTEEN, PART TWO OF THE RAINBOW TRAIL BY ZANE GRAY THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN WILD JUSTICE, PART TWO Nas Bega stretched an arm toward the east and spoke in Navajo, but Shefford, owing to the hurry and excitement of his mind, could not translate. Joe listened, gave a violent start, leaped up with all his big frame quivering, and then fired question after question at the Indian. When the Navajo had replied to all, Joe drew himself up as if facing an irrevocable decision which would wring his very soul. What did he cast off in that moment? What did he grapple with? Shefford had no means to tell, except by the instinct which baffled him. But whether the Mormon's trial was one of spiritual rending, or the natural physical fear of a perilous, virtually impossible venture. The fact was, he was magnificent in his acceptance of it. He turned to shepherd white, cold, yet glowing. "'Nas De Bega believes he can take you down a canyon to the big river, the Colorado. He knows the head of this canyon—None Soche Boco, it's called canyon of the Rainbow Bridge. He has never been down it. Only two or three living Indians had ever seen the great stone bridge, but all have heard of it. They worship it as a god. There's water runs down this canyon, and water runs to the river. Nastebega Bega thinks he can take you down to the river. Go on, cried Shefford breathlessly, as Joe paused. The Indian plans this way. God, it's great. If only I can do my end. He plans to take mustangs today and wait with them for you tonight or tomorrow till you come with the girl. You'll go get Lassiter and the woman out of Surprise Valley. Then you'll strike east for Nonnezoshe Boco. If possible, you must take a pack of grub. You may be days going down and waiting for me at the mouth of the canyon at the river. ''Joe, where will you be?'' ''I'll ride like hell for Cayenta, get another horse there, and ride like hell for the San Juan River. There's a big flat boat at the Durango Crossing. I'll go down the San Juan and that, into the big river. I'll drift down by day, tie up by night, and watch for you at the mouth of every canyon till I come to Nanosheboko. Boco.'' Shefford could not believe the evidence of his ears. He knew the treacherous San Juan River. He had heard of the great, sweeping, terrible, red Colorado and its roaring rapids. "'Oh, it seems impossible,' he gasped. "'You'll just lose your life for nothing.' "'The Indian will turn the trick, I tell you. Take my hunch. It's nothing for me to drift down a swift river. I worked a ferry boat once.' Shefford, to whom flying straws would have seemed stable, Caught the inflection of defiance and daring and hope of the Mormon spirit. What then, after you meet us at the mouth of the Nanesoshi boco?' he queried. We'll all drift down to Lee's Ferry. That's at the head of Marble Canyon. We'll get out on the south side of the river, thus avoiding any Mormons at the ferry. Nastebega knows the country, its open desert on the other side of these plateaus. He can get horses from Navajos. Then you'll strike south for Willow Springs. Willow Springs? That's Presby's trading post, said Shefford. Never met him, but he'll see you safe out of the painted desert. The thing that worries me most is how not to miss you all at the mouth of Noneshoshi. You must have sharp eyes, but I forget the Indian. A bird couldn't pass him. And suppose Noneshoshi Boko as a steep-walled, narrow-mouth opening into rapids. Whoa! Well, well, the Indian will figure that, too. Now let's put our heads together and plan how to turn this end of the trick here. Getting the girl. After a short colloquy, it was arranged that Shefford would go to Ruth and talk to her of the aid she had promised. Joe averred that this aid could be best given by Ruth going in her somber gown and hood to the schoolhouse, and there, while Joe and Shefford engaged the guard outside, she would change apparel and places with Fay, and let her come forth. "'What will they do to Ruth?' demanded Shefford. "'We can't accept her sacrifice if she's to suffer or to be punished.' "'Reckon Ruth has a strong hunch that she can get away with it. Did you notice how strange she said that? Well, they can't do much to her.' The bishop may damn her soul, but Ruth Here Lake hesitated and broke off. Not improbably, he had meant to say that of all the Mormon women in the valley, Ruth was the least likely to suffer from punishment inflicted upon her soul. Anyway, it's our only chance, went on Joe, unless we kill a couple of men. Ruth will gladly take what comes to help you. All right, I consent, replied shefford with emotion and now, after she comes out, the supposed Ruth, what then? You can be natural-like, go with her back to Ruth's cabin, then stroll off into the cedars, then climb the west wall. Meanwhile, Nas Tabega will ride off with a pack of Grub and nack and several other Mustangs. He'll wait for you, or you'll wait for him, as the case may be, at some appointed place. When you're gone, I'll jump my horse and hit the trail for Cayenta and the San Juan. "'Very well, that's settled,' said Shefford soberly. "'I'll go at once to see Ruth. You and Nastebega Bega decide on where I'm to meet him.' "'Reckon you'd do just as well to walk round and come up to Ruth's from the other side instead of going through the village,' suggested Joe. Shefford approached Ruth's cabin in a roundabout way, nevertheless, she saw him coming, before he got there, and, opening the door, stood pale, composed, and quietly bade him enter. Briefly, in low and earnest voice, Shefford acquainted her with the plan. You love her so much, she said, wistfully, wonderingly. Indeed I do. Is it too much to ask of you to do this thing, he asked. Do it, she queried, with a flash of spirit. Of course I'll do it. Ruth, I can't thank you. I can't. I've only a faint idea what you're risking. That distresses me. I'm afraid of what may happen to you. She gave him another of the strange glances. I don't risk so much as you think, she said significantly. Why? She came close to him, and her hands clasped his arms, and she looked up at him, her eyes darkening and her face growing paler. "'Will you swear to keep my secret?' she asked, very low. "'Yes, I swear. "'I was one of Wagner's sealed wives.' "'God Almighty!' broke out Shefford, utterly overwhelmed. "'Yes, that's why I say I don't risk so much. "'I will make up a story to tell the bishop and everybody. "'I'll tell that Wagner was jealous, "'that he was brutal to Mary, "'that I believed she was goaded to her mad deed.' that I thought she ought to be free. They'll be terrible, but what can they do to me? My husband is dead, and if I have to go to hell to keep from marrying another married Mormon, I'll go. In that low, passionate utterance Shefford read, the death blow to the old Mormon polygamous creed. In the uplift of his spirit, in the joy at this revelation, he almost forgot the stern matter at hand. Ruth and Joe Lake, belonged to a younger generation of Mormons. Their nobility, in this instance, was in part a revolt at the conditions of their lives. Doubt was knocking at Joe Lake's heart. A conviction had come to this young sealed wife. Bitter and hopeless, while she had been fettered, strong and mounting now that she was free, in a flash of inspiration, Shefford saw the old order changing. The Mormon creed might survive, but that part of it which was an affront to nature, a horrible yoke on women's necks, was doomed. It could not live. It could never have survived more than a generation or two of religious fanatics. Shefford had marked a different force and religious fervor in the younger Mormons, and now he understood them. "'Ruth, you talk wildly,' he said. BUT I UNDERSTAND, I SEE, YOU ARE FREE AND YOU'RE GOING TO STAY FREE. IT STUNS ME TO THINK OF THAT MAN OF MANY WIVES. WHAT DID YOU FEEL WHEN YOU WERE TOLD HE WAS DEAD?" I DARE NOT THINK OF THAT. IT MAKES ME WICKED. AND HE WAS GOOD TO ME. LISTEN, LAST NIGHT, ABOUT MIDNIGHT, HE CAME TO MY WINDOW AND WOKE ME. I GOT UP AND LET HIM IN. HE WAS IN A TERRIBLE STATE. I THOUGHT HE WAS CRAZY. He walked the floor and called on his Saints and prayed. When I wanted to light a lamp, he wouldn't let me. He was afraid I'd see his face. But I saw well enough in the moonlight, and I knew something had happened. So I soothed and coaxed him. He had been a man as closed-mouthed as a stone, yet then I got him to talk. He had gone to Mary's, and upon entering thought he heard someone with her. She didn't answer him at first. When he found her in her bedroom, she was like a ghost. He accused her. Her silence made him furious. Then he berated her, brought down the wrath of God upon her, threatened her with damnation. All of which she never seemed to hear, but when he tried to touch her, she flew at him like a she-panther. That's what he called her. She said she'd kill him, and she drove him out of her house. He was all weak and unstrung, and I believe scared, too, when he came to me. She must have been a fury. Those quiet, gentle women are furies when they're once roused. Well, I was hours up with him, and finally he got over it. He didn't pray anymore. He paced the room. It was just daybreak when he said the wrath of God had come to him. I tried to keep him from going back to Mary, but he went. An hour later, the woman ran to tell me he had been found dead at Mary's door. "'Ruth, she was mad, driven. She didn't know what she was doing,' said Shefford brokenly. "'She was always a strange girl, more like an Indian than any one I ever knew. We called her the Sago Lily. I gave her the name. She was so sweet, lovely, white and gold, like those flowers. And to think, oh, it's horrible for her. You must save her. If you get her away, there never will be anything come of it. The Mormons will hush it up. Ruth, time is flying, rejoined Shefford hurriedly. I must go back to Joe. You be ready for us when we come. Wear something loose, easily thrown off, and don't forget the long hood. I'll be ready and watching, she said. The sooner the better, I say. He left her and returned toward camp, in the same circling route by which he had come. The Indian had disappeared, and so had his mustang. This significant fact augmented Shefford's hurried, thrilling excitement. But one glance at Joe's face changed all that to a sudden numbness, a sinking of his heart. "'What is it?' he queried. "'Look there!' exclaimed the Mormon. Shefford's quick eye caught sight of horses and men down the valley. He saw several Indians and three or four white men. They were making camp. "'Who are they?' demanded Shefford. "'Shad and some of his gang reckon that Piute told the news. By tomorrow the valley will be full as a horse-wrangler's corral. Lucky Nas Te Bega got away before that gang rode in. Now things won't look as queer as they might have looked. The Indian... "'took a pack of grub, six mustangs, and my guns. "'Then there was your rifle in your saddle sheath. "'So you'll be well-heeled, in case you come to close quarters. "'Reckon you can look for a running fight. "'For now, as soon as your flight is discovered, "'shad will hit your trail. "'He's in with the Mormons, you know him, "'and what you have to deal with. "'But the advantage will be all yours. "'You can ambush the trail.' "'We're in for it, and the sooner we're off the better,' replied Shefford grimly. "'Reckon that's gospel. Well, come on.' The Mormon strode off, and Shefford, catching up with him, kept at his side. Shefford's mind was full, but Joe's dark and gloomy face did not invite communication. They entered the pinion grove and passed the cabin where the tragedy had been enacted. A tarpaulin had been stretched across the front porch, Beal was not in sight, nor were any of the women. "'I forgot,' said Shefford suddenly. "'Where am I to meet the Indian?' "'Climb the west wall, back of camp,' replied Joe. "'Nas Te bega took the stone bridge Trail. "'But he'll leave that, climb the rocks, "'then hide the outfit and come back to watch for you. "'Reckon he'll see you when you top the wall.' They passed on into the heart of the village. Joe tarried at the window of a cabin and passed a few remarks to a woman there, and then he inquired for Mother Smith at her house. When they left here, the Mormon gave Shefford a nudge. Then they separated, Joe going toward the schoolhouse while Shefford bent his steps in the direction of Ruth's home. Her door opened before he had a chance to knock. He entered. Ruth, white and resolute, greeted him with a wistful smile. "'Already?' she asked. "'Yes, are you?' he replied, low-voiced. "'I've only to put on my hood. I think luck favors you. "'Hester was here, and she said Elder Smith told someone "'that Mary hadn't been offered anything to eat yet, "'so I'm taking her a little. "'It'll be a good excuse for me to get in the schoolhouse to see her. "'I can throw off this dress, and she could put it on in a minute. "'Then the hood.' I mustn't forget to hide her golden hair. You know how it flies. But this is a big hood. Well, I'm ready now. And this is our last time together. Ruth, what can I say? How can I thank you? I don't want any thanks. It'll be something to think of always, to make me happy. Only, I'd like to feel you, you cared a little. The wistful smile was there, a tremor, on the sad lips, and a shadow of soul-hunger in her eyes. Shefford did not misunderstand her. She did not mean love, although it was a yearning for real love that she mutely expressed. "'Care. I shall care all my life,' he said, with strong feeling. "'I shall never forget you.' "'It's not likely I'll forget you. Good-bye, John.' Shefford took her in his arms and held her close. "'Ruth, good-bye,' he said, huskily. Then he released her. She adjusted the hood, and, taking up a little tray, which held food covered with a napkin, she turned to the door. He opened it, and they went out. They did not speak another word. It was not a long walk from Ruth's house to the schoolhouse, yet, if it were being measured by Shefford's emotion, the distance would have been unending.' The sacrifice offered by Ruth and Joe would have been noble under any circumstances had they been Gentiles or persons with no particular religion. But considering that they were Mormons, that Ruth had been a sealed wife, that Joe had been brought up under the strange secret and binding creed, their action was no less than tremendous in its import. Shefford took it to mean vastly more than loyalty to him and pity for Fay Larkin. As Ruth and Joe had arisen to this height, so perhaps would other young Mormons have arisen. It needed only the situation, the climax, to focus these long-insulated, slow-developing and inquiring minds upon the truth that one wife, one mother of children, for one man at one time, was a law of nature, love, and righteousness. Shefford felt as if he were marching with the whole younger generation of Mormons, as if somehow he had been a humble instrument in the working out of their destiny in the awakening that was to eliminate from their religion the only thing which kept it from being as good for man and perhaps as true as any other religion. And then suddenly he turned the corner of the schoolhouse to encounter Joe talking with the Mormon Henniger, Elder Smith was not present. "'Why, hello, Ruth,' greeted Joe. "'You fetched Mary some dinner. "'Now that's good of you.' "'May I go in?' asked Ruth. "'Reckon so,' replied Henniger, scratching his head. He appeared to be tractable and probably was good-natured under pleasant conditions. "'She ought to have something to eat, and nobody appears to have remembered that. We're so set up.' He unbarred the huge, clumsy door, and allowed Ruth to pass in. "'Joe, you can go in if you want,' he said, "'but hurry out before Elder Smith comes back from his dinner.' Joe mumbled something, gave a husky cough, and then went in. Shefford experienced great difficulty in presenting to this mild Mormon a natural and unagitated front. When all his internal structure seemed to be in a state of turmoil, he did not see how it was possible to keep the fact from showing in his face. So he turned away and took aimless steps here and there. "'Pear's like we are have rain,' observed Henniger. "'It's right warm, and them clouds are unseasonable.' "'Yes,' replied Shefford. "'Hope so. A little rain would be good for the grass. "'Joe tells me Shad rode in and some of his fellows. "'So I see.' about eight in the party. Shefford was gritting his teeth and preparing to endure the ordeal of controlling his mind and expression when the door opened and Joe stalked out. He had his sombrero pulled down so that it hid the upper half of his face. His lips were a shade off healthy color. He stood there with his back to the door. "'Say what Mary needs is quiet to be left alone,' he said. Ruth says if she rests, sleeps a little, she won't get fever. Henniger, don't let anybody disturb her till night. All right, Joe, replied the Mormon. And I take it good of Ruth and you to concern yourself. A slight tap on the inside of the door sent Shefford's pulses to throbbing. Joe opened it with a strong and vigorous sweep that meant more than the mere action. Ruth reckon you didn't stay long he said and his voice rang clear sure you feel sick and weak why seeing her flustered even me a slender dark-garbed woman wearing a long black hood stepped uncertainly out she appeared to be ruth shefford's heart stood still because she looked so like ruth but she did not step steadily she seemed dazed she did not raise the hooded head Go home, said Joe, and his voice rang a little louder. Take her home, Shefford, or better, walk her round some. She's faintish, and see here, Henniger. Shefford led the girl away with a hand in apparent carelessness on her arm. After a few rods, she walked with a freer step and then a swifter. He found it necessary to make the hold on her arm a real one, so as to keep her from walking too fast. No one, however, appeared to observe them. When they passed Ruth's house then, Shefford began to lose his fear that this was not Fay Larkin. He was far from being calm or clear-sighted. He thought he recognized that free step. Nevertheless, he could not make sure. When they passed under the trees, crossed the brook, and turned down along the west wall, then doubt ceased in Shefford's mind. He knew this was not Ruth. Still so strange was his agitation, so keen his suspense, that he needed confirmation of ear, of eye. He wanted to hear her voice, to see her face. Yet, just as strangely, there was a twist of feeling, a reluctance, a sadness that kept off the moment. They reached the low, slow, swelling slant of wall, and started to ascend. How impossible not to recognize Fay Larkin now, in that swift grace and skill on the steep wall. Still, though he knew her, he perversely clung to the unreality of the moment. But when a long braid of dead gold hair tumbled from under the hood, then his heart leaped. That identified Fay Larkin. He had freed her. He was taking her away. Then... A sadness embittered his joy. As always before, she distanced him in the ascent to the top. She went on without looking back. But Shefford had an irresistible desire to look again, and the last time, at this valley where he had suffered and loved so much. End of Chapter 15 Part 2